House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Hey, welcome back into the House of Mystery. We are at the interview part of the show. Uh, joining us today is a special guest. It really kind of... Uh, I think it's kind of fitting for the time. He's written a book called Sins of My Father. Uh, Kelvin Pierce, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for the invite. I really appreciate it. Um, well, I, I, this is a very personal story to you. It's, it's, it's kind of your, it's your history. So um, I, I, what, what made you want to go public and put out a book and uh, talk about your, your upbringing? Um, well, there's a lot of reasons, actually. You know, I kept this story of mine locked deep inside me for many, many years, and I probably didn't really start telling people, like friends or acquaintances, who I was in relation to my father until I was well into my 30s. And when I did finally start telling my story, I almost universally got the same reaction, and that was, wow, you need to write a book. And I just blew that off for years and years and years. And then, you know, when the 2016 election cycle began, um, a lot of things were happening, a lot of um, sound bites, things like that, that were starting to remind me of my childhood and the things I experienced as a result of my father. And it just got me to thinking again. And so... I started talking to a friend of mine who was a member of my Rotary Club, and they invited me to address my Rotary Club and tell my story. And when I told my story, I was really astounded by the response that I got. I actually had many people in the audience that were crying. Uh, several came up to me and told me how powerful my story was, and they again said, you need to write a book. Um, but the, probably the most pivotal moment was the, what happened in Charlottesville in 2017. When I witnessed those people marching and what they were saying, it took me immediately back to my childhood. And I was just like, I was astounded. I really guess I had been lulled into a sense of belief that racism in our country was healing. Um, but it was obvious that it was actually going in the other direction. And that's when I made the decision that I really need to write a book and get myself out there, uh, start speaking, and start offering some sort of antidote to what I saw was happening in our country. You know, I was going to say, so when you were growing up with um, your father, uh, William Pierce, um, did you even – have an idea that you guys were different than the rest of a lot of the country or like like what i'm saying is you know his his idea um behind the turner diaries and in what he believed and how he um led his life did you think that was normal uh, to a certain degree i did um i mean you know the abuse um, the psychological, mental, and physical abuse that I was receiving. Um, yeah, I mean, by the time I left home, I thought that was normal. I knew anything. I didn't know anything different. But at another level, I also knew that there was something 
very different because, you know, as a kid, I was being beaten up by neighborhood kids. I was being called Nazi all the time. Um, we had no friends as a family. We never got together with other members of our family, except for very rarely. We didn't go on vacations. We didn't do what most normal families did. And so I could definitely see a difference there. So when this was happening, how did how did you self, how did you get away from it? How did you make the break? Oh, well, it was a very long, slow, painful evolution. I guess the first thing that really happened was when I was a student at Virginia Tech, I started experiencing people from all over the world, you know, all different races and religions and um, one of my first roommates was a, a man from Central America or, or South America. And I just started getting to know these people and I started realizing to, you know, to myself that, you know, these people are just like I am. You know, they have the same kind of thoughts, they have the same kind of desires, they have the same kind of fears. And um, some of them actually became quite good friends of mine. And then I started questioning everything that my dad had taught me. Um, but I didn't really do a lot with it. I still held, deeply held my racist beliefs. I just didn't broadcast them to the world. I just kept them to myself. And I had all sorts of triggers that would bring up racist thoughts in my mind when I saw certain people or I experienced certain things or I was in a bad mood or I was angry about something else. Um, but, you know, when I finally got into my 40s and I really got sick and tired of feeling sick and tired and being depressed and angry and anxious all the time, I actually actively sought help for that. And that's what really started the healing process. So what, do, what does that kind of help look like? Where did you go? Um, well, the first thing I did was go to a psychiatrist. And that was of no help at all. Um, basically, after two meetings with the psychiatrist, he told me I was depressed. He told me my father was a sadist, and he gave me a prescription for antidepressants. Um, I went to the CVS and was picking up those antidepressants, and it was like six pills for $75 or something like that. And I'm like, you know, I really don't feel like this is the answer. So I gave the pills back, and... Um, looked for other solutions, and I eventually settled on, based on a referral from a good friend of mine, um, a personal counselor who uh, used Eastern uh, thought type of wellness um, healing. And that's really what made the difference, was examining my thoughts, um, honestly evaluating whether those thoughts were helpful to me, whether they were um, true, um, and how I could rewrite the constant hateful tapes that were running through my head on a constant basis. So your dad was no knuckle-dragging idiot like uh, a lot of these folks are portrayed. He was quite an intelligent man and, and learned. Is that correct? Yeah, he was far, far from all the other people that were surrounded uh, around him while he was doing his thing. He was extremely intelligent. Uh, you know, he had a Ph.D. in physics. He had a very high IQ rating. He, his research that he did while he was getting his Ph.D. in physics was actually 
well-known throughout the world. He had scientists from all over the world writing him and asking him about his research. Um, and I was always astounded when occasionally I would go into his office. He would, you know, drag me and my brother to his office in Arlington with the, you know, American Nazi Party when we were kids. And I was always astounded by the people that were around him. They were like what you initially described. They were a lot more like the knuckle-dragging, you know, low-educated, um, grievance-nursing uh, white teenagers and young 20s that had nothing better to do than to uh, try to go around and get in fights and, and you know, ex expanding their racist beliefs. It was, it was astounding to me. I almost never saw anybody like my dad around my dad. I guess that kind of is what made him so dangerous was his ability to uh, to write. I mean, he did write that book, uh, The Turner Diaries, and that had a, a really massive effect on a lot of different people, and it's banned in a lot of places. Can you talk about how that book came about? Um, well, that was only a fraction of, of the writing that my dad did. I mean, he wrote volumes and volumes, but probably the, the most um, influential early part of his writing was a a monthly magazine or newspaper that he would put out um, called Attack. And he would um, issue that every month, and my brother and I would um, actually help him mail that to all his supporters around the country every month. Um, and he was really uh, having a hard time growing his base. He had like a, a stable, small group of supporters um, and he could never, for any reason, be able to expand it. And so one day he met with a colleague, um, and he was complaining about how his writings weren't really making much of a difference. And this colleague suggested to him that he needed to write fiction, and that that's what a lot of these, um, you know, lower educated white people that were flocking to my dad and who idolized my dad. That's what they would be more interested in reading in comparison to his intellectual debate type of writing, uh, convincing people why white people were superior. So he's decided to start writing a novel, and he did one chapter at a time in each of his attack magazines, and it became so popular he decided to put it all together into a book and publish the book. Um, now, he published the book under another name, is that correct? Yeah, he did. He did. And, and what was his thinking behind that? Um, well, his thinking behind that was that he really wanted it to be like considered an independent novel, um, kind of apart from the National Alliance and apart from, you know, Dr. William Pierce. Um, and he was also, you know, very concerned and very careful about, um, you know, the First Amendment and what he could get away with uh, in his writings um, as far as inciting violence and things like that. And when he wrote this book, you know, he wrote this book based on his fantasies, you know, his deep fantasies about things that he really wished he could do if he thought he could get away with it. 
but he also knew that, you know, if it wasn't declared as a novel and that it wasn't, like, independent from the National Alliance, that he could, he could get put in jail. And he absolutely did not want that to happen. So he was very careful. So this book is pointed to as um, sort of Timothy McVeigh's roadmap to what he did to the, the in the bombing of the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma in 1995. Um, when you heard of the book's involvement in that, um, what were your thoughts? Um, well, I mean, I, was, I wasn't surprised at all, um, and I knew that my dad would absolutely be thrilled um, about the fact that he incited something like that. Um, and that he was, and I know, was absolutely thrilled by the publicity and the exposure and the increase in uh, interest that he and the National Alliance received as a result of that. Personally, I was, you know, horrified by that, but it, it didn't surprise me at all. I mean, because I was, I grew up with my dad from the time I was five years old until I left home, hearing his ranting and raving about minorities and about Jews and how much he absolutely hated them, it drove every single minute of his life. So it absolutely didn't surprise me at all that he could incite other people to carry out the fantasies that he wished he could do. What, what do you think he wants um, or wanted? What was his intention in putting out uh, Attack and as well as the Turner Diaries? Well, when he was writing an attack, he was trying to get um, intellectual people more like him um, educated to what his beliefs were uh, about the white race and the dangers to the existence of the white race as he saw it, and hopefully to the point where they were willing to come out of the closet and actively support him. And ultimately his goal was to create a whites-only homeland somewhere within the United States uh, where people would come to him, whites-only, and create this, you know, homogeneous place where people could live and prosper and um, be separate from uh, non-whites. That's, um, do, do you feel this is what's happening in the last four years, do you feel like that's sort of the direction the country is headed in? No, I don't. Uh, I think for the last four years, what we've seen basically is a, a demagogue uh, running our country using um, division as a tool for his power uh, and for his delight. And I think what's happened is that, you know, I've always understood that racism has always been and, and is still uh, a problem in our country, but I've always felt like it was kind of like latent, that it had kind of been buried beneath the surface because it became so politically incorrect to, you know, to espouse your racist views. I mean, except for the very few that would do it. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, our new president, our new administration made those racist beliefs and the displaying of those racist beliefs much more unassailable than it used to be. And so I, there's a lot of people out there that are suffering a lot. 
And one of the ways they attempt to try to make themselves feel better is to put other people down. And, you know, they had a roadmap, and they had a cheerleader, and they had a coach that was saying, yeah, it's right to do this, and we need to do this. And um, But I don't see it at the point where it's coalescing and gelling into a strong enough unit that it's going to uh, go anywhere near what my dad was hoping for. Where do you think it came from for your dad? Like, we're, we're, do, do you have any idea of of how it happened for him where he was this way? Um, well, I know that, you know, when I was about two years old, um, you know, he had finished his degree um, in physics, and he was at a crossroads where he had to make a decision about what he was going to do with his life. And he he knew from earlier on that he he did not ever want to, work for other people and take direction from other people. But of course, you know, my mother was pressing him to cash in his value as a PhD physicist, which at that time in the 60s was very valuable in this country. Um, and she wanted him to take a job in industry and he absolutely refused. So instead he took a job as a professor at Oregon State University. And while he was there, for the first time really in his life, he started witnessing um, things happening in our country at a political level that he had always ignored before. And he started seeing the beginnings of the civil rights movement. He started seeing uh, integrated couples because they were more accepted in uh, the West Coast of our country than they were in other parts of our country. And he also started seeing things about the Vietnam War, and he started really questioning about the rightness and wrongness as he saw it. And that led him to start doing a lot of reading. And uh, some of the stuff that he read was about government, about um, European history, about um, communism, you know, the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, he read Mein Kampf, and he started formulating um, beliefs for himself, and the core belief that he formulated was that the Jewish people were responsible for all the ills of our society, and it kind of grew from a small ember into this giant mushroom cloud of hatred, um, and he just took it and ran with it and decided that that was going to be his mission in life was to do something about that. So you mentioned your mother and how she wanted him to be, um, you know, get into his his, his uh, you know, being a, a physicist, um, how, how did she react to his direction? Well, she was horrified. Um, you know, when it first started happening and she started realizing what was going on, she was absolutely horrified by it. But she also very much believed in her marriage vows, and she was also uh, afraid. She was very afraid. You know, she had two young twin boys, and she uh, didn't have a job, and she didn't feel like she could ever really have a good-paying job. So she completely relied on my father for income. And when it came to the point where he decided that he was going to quit his job and move to the East Coast and join the American Nazi Party, he basically looked at my mother and said, you coming with me or not? I, I don't care what you do. 
And, you know, now, you know, not now, but a few years ago before she died, she said she wished she had made another choice, but she said she decided to go with him because she was afraid that she wouldn't be able to make it on her own with two young boys. So she followed him to the East Coast, and it just went downhill from there. How is it now with um, your family, like your mother's past? Is your twin brother still alive? He is. Yes, he is. And he's, you know, he's doing well. He, he's not nearly as um, outspoken or doesn't necessarily share all the same Eastern-leaning wellness views that I do. But um, he, um, he didn't seem to... What's how, how, how should I say it? He didn't seem to be as negatively affected by um, our upbringing as I was. He didn't come out of the house uh, as depressed and anxious and messed up as I did. So I, I, I'm, I'm taking it that you, when you guys went uh, and joined the Nazi party, or your, your father did, um, you probably would have been in some of the meetings and your friends would have been leaning toward being, you know, a Nazi or in that sort of framework. So now that you've pulled away from that, um, have you got anybody remaining from the, from the old days? No. Um, and I had no friends back then. Um, I, I cannot stress enough how absolutely isolated um, my family was from others uh, because of my dad's actions. I mean, you know, when he joined the American Nazi Party and then he started selling guns to other people and he actually wrote an ad in the newspaper and he labeled the, that ad for selling guns as guns for use as Negro control equipment. My neighbors found out about that. We were absolutely shunned. Um, I didn't start making friends until I was in high school, and I started breaking away from my father. And at that point, nobody knew who my father was because, um, you know, he had kind of uh, gone through his initial bad press stage. And the time when I was in high school, the National Alliance really was nothing. You know, they had very few supporters. They were barely surviving, and he wasn't written up in the press much at all. You know, after I wrote this book, I've had many of my high school friends contact me and like, oh, my God, I had no idea what you went through. I had no idea what you were going through when you were a student in, in high school. Um, and the only people from the Nazi party we associated with was like one one guy that was a good friend of my dad's. And we went to his house maybe once or twice. And that was it. Um, we We never interacted with other people. Wow, quite quite a quite a quite a young life. Um, how do you see yourself now? Um, <laughs> That's a good question. Um, on, definitely on a path of healing. Um, I'm, you know, I'm really excited about um, you know what I have learned and the benefits from what I've learned. And when I wrote the book, I didn't really write the book to sell a lot of copies. What I really was hoping was that I would get some exposure and then I would get invitations to speak. I felt like that was m my most powerful opportunity 
to reach out to other people and to offer them hope and to answer their questions about how they might overcome some of the feelings that I was um, experiencing and thought processes and things like that. But, of course, COVID derailed all of that. But I'm hoping at one point, if we get back to a more normal uh, society, um, that I'll be able to go out there and speak and reach out to people and offer them some hope and some guidance on how they could um, experience their own healing. Yeah, what would you say, um, with, with all of the distrust, the um, conspiracy and all of the negativity on, um, it's easy to fall into this, this category. It's easy to hate others, I guess, because of color or race or blame others. It's sort of something that we've seen an increase in, especially politically and the following. following. Um, so, so what would you say to someone like that? Like how, how would you direct someone that was, let's say, on the fence? Well, I, would, I guess the first question I would ask them is, does the way they feel, does that hatred really feel good? You know, does it really feel good? Um, and if it doesn't, then um, why not examine some alternatives? I mean, I see hate as kind of like a, kind of like a drug, you know? It's like this ad uh, initial adrenaline boost that you get when you, you momentarily hate somebody else, you know, you momentarily put yourself above them, which makes you feel better about yourself momentarily. But it's just like a drug, you know, you get that initial high and then it wears off and then you need more and more and more. And ultimately you end up just feeling terrible and hate is the same way. Um, and so, you know, ask yourself, does this really feel good? Is this really who I am, and this is this really what I want to be about, is hating other human beings? Hmm. What do you hope people get out of your book? So someone picks up your book, they read it, and what do you want them to walk away with? Uh, well, what I would like for them to understand is, again, that there is hope. And I think probably the most powerful thing that you can do is to truly learn about the nature of your thoughts. Um, and I think that in our society right now, that we have a, a rampant problem with mental illness. And, you know, that mental illness comes in various degrees and, you know, it, it's, and it's something that we as a society do not address. I mean, I actually believe that we should be, from the time kids start elementary school, we should start teaching them about what wellness means and what it looks like and how you can actively um, choose your thoughts and, um, you know, to feel better and to not allow really bad feeling thoughts to control you and to consume you and that you have a choice, that you absolutely have a choice. So many people out there don't feel like they have a choice. They don't have real hope, and so they, they choose hate or they choose fear uh, instead of uh, the opposite, which is love. How do you remember your father now? Well, I've completely forgiven my father, and the way I remember him now is, I mean, it varies. Sometimes, I, you know, I my father and I'm like you asshole 
Right. You know, how could you have done that? You know, you flaming jerk. And sometimes when I look at him, I look at him with deep empathy um, because he obviously was not well. He was extremely intelligent, but that doesn't mean that he was mentally or emotionally well. He obviously was not. And he missed out on some of what I think are the most precious things that we have as human beings uh, as gifts. And one of those gifts is, you know, our ability to create relationships with other people and also our children are some of the greatest gifts that we will ever have in our life. And he missed out on those completely. He, he turned his back on them and he turned toward hate and he never came back from that. And, you know, when you talk about uh, physical abuse and psychological abuse, um, do you, is there a certain event or time that you remember most um, when you were a child? Um, oh, well, there are so many. Um, there was one beating in particularly that I remember probably the most, and I write about that in my book, and that's when I was probably – six or seven years old, and I decided to take a razor blade to his leather uh, um, recliner. And I basically shredded it to pieces with a razor blade. And um, when he got home and realized what I had done, um, yeah, that was probably one of the most significant encounters I've ever had with my dad. Um, and then, you know, probably the other moment that I remember the most is when I stopped the abuse. Um, and that's when I decided I was going to join my high school football team, even though he for, forbid it, absolutely. Um, and once he realized that I had joined the football team and he grabbed me by my shoulder and yanked me around and pulled his fist back like he was going to start his normal process, you know, by this time I was, you know, 16 years old and I had been lifting weights and I was about as big as he was, not quite. Um, I gave him a look that he had never seen me give him before. And he studied that look for several seconds, and then he realized what was going to happen. And uh, he let me go. He shook his head. And he basically didn't speak to me for at least two years after that. So you think his frustration was that you weren't, uh, let's say, falling into line, that you weren't expressing the same amount of hate toward, let's say, the Jews? That seemed to be one of his issues as he did? Um, I, I mean, that might have something to do with it. I mean, I think it was a lot more than that because the only time he really tried to interact with me as a child was like when he bought me a chemistry set and he really wanted me to be a, as excited about chemistry as he was as a kid. You know, he made me as a, like a, as a five-year-old try to memorize the periodic table of elements. He bought me a slide rule. He tried to teach me how to use that. And I absolutely wasn't interested in that at all. I wanted to go outside and play in the woods and build forts and, you know, play with a football or something like that. And, um, you know, he really just had no interest in being a father. Um, but he always saw me as different than my brother because he could tell I was more scientifically minded. Um, and he, I guess he did try to, in his own way, mold me into a version of him, and I resisted it every single step. And 
uh, you know, I think he was definitely frustrated by that. But ultimately, he really did not want to be a father. He really wasn't interested in being a father except for the discipline role. He absolutely relished that role. And he, um, he, you know, he really went overboard with that role. But as far as love, you know, he told my mom that his role as a father was for discipline only. And her role was the, was the role for, for love and, and coddling and all that sort of stuff. I wonder how how is your um, how is your ability to have relationships with people now? Does, is it still pretty affected by this? Uh, it is affected a little bit. I mean, it certainly was a huge problem uh, when I got married. Um, so when I got married, um, you know, one of the first things that started happening was I was getting regular feedback from my spouse about things that were not working for her. And I always, without exception, I always took that as um, rejection uh, because that's what I experienced my whole life as a child, that I was not good enough, that I was worthless, and I felt worthless. And so if my wife asked me a simple request like, could you do this for me? Well, you know, I took that as rejection. And the way I reacted to that was to shut down and to shut out. And it created massive problems for me throughout my entire marriage. And it wasn't until I started healing and starting examining my thoughts and taking responsibility for my actions that I started to overcome that. Um, now I'm actually able to have a relationship with other people and to make friends. Um, and actually be able to go out and socialize, I couldn't do that before. I mean, when my wife wanted me to go to a party, I would go to the party, I would stand in the corner, and I would be just like, can we leave now? Can we leave now? Because I felt so uncomfortable. I just felt like everybody was examining me and realizing how worthless I was, and I just felt horrible. I hated it. I wonder if that's – when you see people like the um, – the people that were marching in Charlottesville there. And do you think they feel the same way? Do you think that's sort of a key issue with, with a lot of, of these um, nationalists or supremacists? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've always asked myself a question once I start on my healing. It's like, if you truly love yourself, can you hate someone else? And the answer is no. You know, those two states of mind simply cannot exist. So, yeah, I mean, it, it comes all the way to me, I believe, I'm, I'm no expert by any means, but what I believe is, is that um, anybody who hates other people, um, then they have an issue with how they feel about themselves. So what's the answer? Like, how, how is it you take a group or get into a group like that? And 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 how do you, I don't know when to say educate, but actually make them feel like they could have value in themselves if they change. Like how how is it that we can do that as a society? Um, well, I think that there's many different ways to do that, but one way is to address how we feel about ourselves and our feelings of unworthiness and. You know, a lot of that comes from messages from our parents and from our teachers and from our peers. Um, 
And so as a society, I think that we can address that from a very early level, that everybody is individual and unique and um, is worthy and, um, you know, try to um, get people to look at um, themselves beyond just themselves so that they don't feel completely separated and isolated, um, that they feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves. Um, that's one of the main reasons why, you know, there's so much of this fear and anxiety and unworthiness feelings is that a lot of times we just feel all alone and that we're not part of anything else. And one of the reasons why people might join a hate group or, um, you know, something like the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers or something like that is because they want to be part of something that's bigger than themselves. And I don't think that's a good choice to join something like that, but that's one of the things that they're attempting to do. And if we give them something else like, you know, let's look at the human race and look at um, how we're all connected to each other and how we're really not as different from each other as a lot of people think we are, um, I think that's how you lay the initial, um, you know, steps for a, a different way of thinking and a different way of, of looking at other people. I, I think one thing you said earlier was that, you know, you're trying to uh, uh, get over hearing all the bad tapes in your head about yourself or what you think and that. Um, do you think things like that when we, keep saying bad things in our mind about ourselves. Uh, does it also cause you to do things out of habit, maybe? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It certainly does. And, you know, that's one of the first things that my counselor told me was, you know, we are going to rewrite those tapes that are in your head because you have a lot of really awful things that you believe about yourself. And it's not true. And it's something that, of course, I was taught from a very, very early age. And I truly believed that I was worthless and that I was no good. And uh, I think there's a lot of people out there that, even though they may not consciously think about that, subconsciously that's what their belief system is. And once you start evaluating that and really looking at it and um, challenging it, um, that's how you you start to affect the healing. Wow, pretty pretty amazing story. Do you do you have you set up a website or anything so people can get in contact with you, or are you not really looking for that? I have not. My email address is in the book. I've had a few people reach out to me, but I've had people suggest to me that I do need to create some sort of website. Um, I guess I'm just not very good at that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, that is a good idea. Um, but I absolutely do welcome people contacting me, and I would love opportunities to speak and, you know, um, answer questions, talk to people, uh, things like that. Well, your book is really timely, and uh, um, I, for one, appreciate its message. Um, I'm of Jewish heritage uh, myself, so, um, you know, every time I read about a synagogue being painted on or, or something like that, you know, I just think of my relatives in uh, in Europe who 
you know, our family tree ends in places like Bergen-Belsen and Auschwitz. So mm-hmm. uh, people, yeah. people like yourself who are willing to, who have changed and are willing to speak out, um, it takes a lot of courage, and uh, I, I applaud you for it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Wow. So now uh, what we'll do is we'll put your book up on our website as well, so people that are listening to the show um, can pick it up with one click. And um, Awesome. You know, let's, let's hope for the best. Let's hope everything gets better. And uh, um, COVID's been pretty tough on people. Has it, has it been an extra challenge for you? I guess probably, eh? It has. I mean, it. You know, I have. You know, one of one of my um, daughters is a first responder, so I worry about her a lot. Um, um, fortunately, though, my business, you know, which is construction, has been considered essential throughout, so I have been able to stay working, which is a blessing compared to millions of people in this country who have lost their jobs as a result. Um, and but just you know, from a family and society standpoint it's been a challenge the biggest challenge for me is that i can't go back to georgia right now and i miss my kids in georgia so much and they're constantly saying when are you coming back when are you coming back and i'm like well i'll come back as soon as it's safe but i can't you know i can't go to eastern europe in the middle of this crisis and you know the the georgian people they love me but they won't let me in their country because they know i come from the u.s which has a out of control COVID situation. So that's the hardest thing for me right now is I'm constantly thinking about my kids in Georgia and just just eating for the time when I can go back and visit them again. Yeah, you know, the whole COVID thing has kind of jumped in as part of the, uh, you know, conspiracy and part of a, you know, it, it, it adds to the to the fire, doesn't it? It does. It does, yeah. It's, you know, an absolutely real thing. I've had friends in Georgia and Eastern Europe who have died as a result of this. I've had one of my relatives die as a result of COVID. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's like surreal. It's like, when is this nightmare going to end? Yeah, all in at once. Wow. Um, well, um, the book is called Sins of My Father, and it's Growing Up with America's Most Dangerous White Supremacists. And our guest has been Calvin Pierce. Thank you for being here, Calvin. My pleasure. Yeah, must much appreciated. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.